Well, I want to welcome everybody here. Welcome to those of you that are over in the, the venue. And I was over there last hour and was over there a little while ago. And Hannah Martin was one of your worship leaders over there, a young lady who um, just led a beautiful song. And um, man, I was just a that's just a great gathering. If you're here and you've never been to our venue at 9 a.m. or 11, there's a live band. A lot of these guys rotate themselves over there. And, man, the worship over there is really great. It's a different kind of a vibe in there. It's way smaller and there's tables and all of that. But, um, Hannah, that was a, you just did a great job. Thank you. And um, if you're visiting with us over there, we're glad you're here. If you're listening on the radio, we're glad you're listening on the radio. It could be you're on, on the internet listening to us, and I don't care how you're listening to us, I'm just glad you are. And those of you that are visiting with us, um, I know it can be uh, nerve-wracking, especially if this is your first time ever being in a church. And um, everybody in this room at one time or another was a first-time guest in a church, in this church. So we all know how you feel. And it can be a little scary, you know. There's all these singing going on and then high-fiving and then little baskets going in front of you and people standing, sitting down and, you know, what's going to happen next? And I, I remember those feelings. And we, we've all been there. We're just glad that you're with us. And here's the deal. If you come back next week, guess what? You'll know exactly kind of what's going to happen. You'll be, a, you'll be a veteran if you come back next week. And we'd love to have you uh, back here. We're in a series here at Big Valley Grace called life. Jesus said this in John chapter 10, he said, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. The, the, the purpose of the devil, the demons, false teachers, false prophets, is they just want to mess up your life. They want to mess up your family. Jesus said that his purpose was way different. His purpose was to come and give you a, a rich and satisfying life. That's what Jesus wants to do. But here's the deal. This new life, this rich and satisfying life just doesn't happen automatically, does it? You can invite Jesus Christ into your life. You can know that someday you're going to go to heaven and yet not experience this incredible life that God came to give you. Now, obviously, when we take our last breath here and we're now in glory, wow, this rich and satisfying life will take on a whole nother um, feel. But God wants you to have an incredible life this side of heaven. And just because you know Jesus as your Savior doesn't guarantee that you're going to have this in incredible life. In fact, I meet lots of Christians. I've been here at this church for almost 30 years. And I've met a lot of believers. Some of you are probably here today or sitting over in the venue. And you know Christ as your Savior. You gave your life to Jesus. You know your sins have been forgiven. You know your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and all that kind of stuff. You know that when you die, you're going to be in heaven with the Lord. But you're not experiencing this life that Jesus came to give you. Somehow it's escaped you. And it's been my prayer that as we've gone through this series, that somehow maybe some of the things that we've talked about would, um, would be a blessing to you. You see, I, I want you to experience this life. 
Jesus died on a cross that you would experience this life. And I know because of the emails I get and, and, and some of the phone calls I get, I know that the Lord's doing some things in your life. I know it. Some of you at the beginning of this series were, you know, just kind of existing. You weren't experiencing this life, but something has changed. You've taken some of the things that we've talked about, some of the things that God wrote about in his word, and you've applied them to your life, and you're seeing your life change, and that's a, that's a, beautiful, a beautiful thing. But I want you to know that, without a doubt, the number one thing that will rob you of this life that Jesus came to, to give you is, is sin. I want you to listen to what God said through the great prophet Jeremiah. God said, make this announcement to Israel and say this to Judah. Listen, you foolish and senseless people, with eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. Have you no respect for me? Why don't you tremble in my presence? I, the Lord, define the ocean's sandy shoreline as an everlasting boundary that the waters cannot cross. The waves may toss and roar, but they can never pass the boundaries that I set. But my people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned away and abandoned me. They do not say from the heart, let us live in awe of the Lord our God, for he gives us rain each spring and fall. He assures us of a harvest when the time is right. And then he says this in verse 25, your wickedness has deprived you of these wonderful blessings. Your sin has robbed you of all of these good things. You see, the Lord has all of these blessings that he wants to pour out on your life. He has all of these good things that he wants to pour out on your life. And one of the things that kind of messes up those good things, those blessings that God has for you is when you live your life sinfully. Now, with all this said, I want to tell you a story. It's a really sad story that really captures just how ugly sin is. It's a story that really has a, a crummy ending to it. In, in fact, the ending is going to bother a lot of you. But it's a story where you're going to go, wow, I, I, just, I, I can see how ugly sin is. I can see how sin destroys lives. I can see how sin damages my own life and also the life of those around me. And the story begins in Joshua chapter six, and this is what I want everybody to do. Everybody turn there, okay? I normally don't do this. I normally don't wait for people to turn to a particular passage in the Bible, and here's why. There's nothing magical with looking at the word of God between these two leather-bound covers. It doesn't matter whether it's up there or it's in your notes where I always put the scriptures. The word of God is powerful, whatever the context. And I know that many of you are brand new in the faith, and I could have you turn to every place that I turn, and you know, you'd be looking around, and by the time you finally got there, I'm already on to two other verses, right? And instead of listening to maybe what the Lord is saying, you're busy trying to find a Bible verse. And so what I do is I just put them all in the program, or I put them all on the jumbotron so that you can see them because that's what matters, is that you see the word of God. 
But I do want everybody to find the book of Joshua and turn to chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the Jumbotrons and they'll be in your notes. Um, this, um, this story really begins in, in, in chapter 6. In chapter 6, we uh, find a city. The city is called uh, Jericho. Most of you have probably heard of the city of Jericho, even those of you who may not even believe in the Bible. You've heard about the walls that were around Jericho, and one day the walls came tumbling down, right? Well, I want you to understand what took place there. Jericho was a, a really evil city. It was a wicked city. It was really a cancer on planet Earth, if you will. In fact, it, it was a, a pus pocket of unrighteousness. Ooh. But that's what it was. And God has had it up to here with the people of Jericho. He's had it up to here with their, their sin and their evil and their wickedness and their rebellion. And so God makes the decision that he's going to cut the cancer off of the planet. He's going to get rid of this pus pocket of unrighteousness. And the surgical instrument that God is going to use is the Israeli army. The Israeli army is going to be the scalpel, if you will, to cut the cancer out of the body. And so God shows up to Joshua, who was kind of the big shot of the day, and he gives Joshua what his will is. He gives Joshua what the plan is, how they were to um, go about wiping out this evil city. And so Joshua gets the plan from God, and then he gathers his army together. And let's just pretend that you're the Israeli army, and let's just pretend for a second that I'm Joshua. And I've got you all gathered together, and Joshua basically says this. This was God's will. Listen, army, I've heard from the Lord. Jericho's an evil city, and God's going to get rid of it. He's going to use us, and here's the plan. And I want you to listen very carefully. We need to do exactly what God says. What we're going to do is we're going to go to the city of Jericho, which, by the way, I've been there. You can go there today and see the ruins. I've been there twice. The ruins are still there. What we're going to do is we're going to get to the city and then we're going to march around at one time. And then we're going to camp out for the night. Then we're going to wake up in the morning. And then we're going to walk around it again. Then we're going to camp out. Then we're going to walk around it again. Then we're going to camp out. Then we're going to walk around it again. And we're going to do that for six days. On the seventh day, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to walk around the city seven times. And we're going to put all the guys with the trumpets, the shofars, out in front of us. And when we get around that thing seven times, we're going to blow the trumpets, and I want all of you to scream and hoop and holler, and God promises at that moment the walls that are keeping us from getting inside the city, that evil city, are going to come tumbling down. Now when the walls come down, this is what we're going to do. We're going to run over all the rocks, we're going to go into the city, and we're going to wipe everybody out, every man, every woman, every child. We're going to slaughter everybody except for a handful of people. And God gave them the list of just a handful of people that they were gonna spare. So the soldiers would have said, we got the plan. We know what God's will is. Joshua says, but there's one other thing. There's one more thing that God wants us to do. Pay close attention. When we go into the city and we wipe everybody out, the Bible says in verse 18, take a look at it. 
because you won't understand anything if you don't understand this. In the New Living Translation, it says, don't take any of the things that have set apart for destruction. The NIV says, but keep away from the devoted things. A lot of your Bibles will say, keep yourselves from the things that are under the ban. What's he talking about there? There's an old saying that goes like this, to the victor go the spoils. Oftentimes when a military uh, unit goes into a city and wipes a city out, to the victor go the spoils. I know some men who in World War II, you know, picked up a, a, a German helmet or picked up a Luger or a bayonet uh, or something like that. In other words, when you win, if you're in the army, to the victor go the spoils, right? God says, not this time. Soldiers, you, when the walls go down, we're gonna go in, we're gonna wipe everybody out, we're gonna kill everybody, but you leave all the gold, all the silver, it's all under the ban. Don't touch it. It's not for you to take home. To the victor go the spoils, not in this uh, instance. Leave it all there. So God's will is pretty clear here. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. If you got a half a cell working in your mind, it's an easy book to understand. God's will isn't hide, you know, hiding in a cave. It's not under a bush. It's a pretty simple thing. Now, there are a lot of guys out there that make it really complicated. But God's will is a very clear thing. And Joshua gives the soldiers God's will. We're going to go around the city once, camp out. Twice, camp out. Seventh day, seven times, scream, yell, go in, wipe everybody out, kill everybody, and don't touch anything. Don't take anything. We clear? And they all went, we're in. We got it, boss. We're in. Well, they walked around the city on the seventh day seven times. They screamed and yelled, trumpets blew, and sure enough, the walls came tumbling down. And everybody, you know, made a mad dash over the walls and they went in and it was a, it was a bloodbath. It was, it was a slaughter. But there was one guy, his name was Achan. Achan was one of the Israeli soldiers. And Achan, you know, bust open a door, walked in, wiped out a whole family. And as he was leaving the house, apparently something caught his eye. And he stops, and out on the street, there must have been mayhem. Could you imagine um, the, the screaming and the yelling and all of the carnage that was going on as a whole town was being wiped out? Well, Achan opens the door and something catches his eye. And he backs up, shuts the door, turns around and he sees this bar of gold. He sees some silver coins. So he walks over and he picks them up. He puts them inside of his tunic. And he walks back outside, shuts the door, goes and kills some more people. Later that day, he gets back to his house, takes the gold, takes the silver, goes in his backyard, digs a hole, and he buries it. Probably thinking that in a month or two months, I can take some of the silver coins, some of the gold, and kind of, kind of launder it, if you will, back into the economy. 
Listen to me. It was the perfect crime. There wasn't any FBI. There wasn't any CSI. There wasn't any KGB. Pick any three letters you want to put together. There wasn't any of it. There was no DNA they could look at. There was no hair fibers that they were going to find. There wasn't going to be any fingerprint dust inside the house. It literally was the perfect crime. Now you get to Joshua chapter 7. And there's another evil city called Ai. It's once again uh, a city full of wickedness and rebellion, and God has had it up to here with the people of Ai, and he wants to cut that cancer out of the planet, off the planet. Once again, he wants to use the Israeli army. And so what Joshua does is he gets a little, uh, maybe like a SEAL Team 6, if you will, and he sends SEAL Team 6 on a little reconnaissance mission. I want you to go to the city of Ai, kind of scout it out. I need to know, you know, what kind of defenses does it have? What kind of guns do they have? What kind of bayonets do they have? What kind of bombs do they have? You know, what's their military training? You know, how... how uh, Strong or, or, or is the army of AI. And so this group goes out, does a little reconnaissance mission, comes back and says, Joshua, look, piece of cake. Nothing like Jericho. We don't even need to send the whole army. All we got to do is send a garrison or two. And we can wipe the, the people of AI out, no problem. By the way, you can, you can read this in about four minutes. You, you have a pastor who, when he reads things, I, I, just, I just see something, okay? I, I, it's gonna take me an hour to unpack the whole thing, but this, is, this, is, this would be the, a great movie of the week. I'm telling you, this could be just an incredible thing. So anyway, Joshua says, okay, he listens to his commanders and he sends a garrison of a couple thousand guys into AI. And the Bible says that the men of AI rose up with their rusty guns and their rusty bullets and their rusty bayonets and their lack of training, and they wipe out the Israeli army. In fact, they're all running home, all wounded and, and got arrows stuck in them, you know? In fact, the Bible tells us that at least 36 Israeli soldiers lose their life at the Battle of Ai. 36 men are dead. That means there are 36 women who are now widows. They'll never see their husbands again. That means there's, I don't know, maybe 100 plus children that will never see their father again. This was a slaughter. And the people, you know, the soldiers come running back to Joshua and they say, Joshua, Joshua, you're not gonna believe what happened. We don't know what what." what, what what went down, man? The men of Ai, they rose up and they, they wiped us out. And the Bible says that Joshua begins to cry out to God and he falls on the ground. He rips his clothes. God, why are you allowing this to happen? All the other nations are going to think you're an impotent God. Why did you allow this to happen? Why, why is this going on, God? And in Joshua chapter 7, look at verse 10. But the Lord said to Joshua, get up. And in the Hebrew, it's pretty strong. 
There's Joshua on the ground. Oh, God, get up. Why are you laying on your face like this? And then he says this, Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. Pastor, I thought you said it was one guy. I thought you said it was a guy named Macon. It was. But it's interesting how God impugns an entire nation because of one man's disobedience, one man's sin. I wish I could tell you, Christian, and I'm talking to Christians in here. I wish that I could say, look, your life is your life, and however you want to live it, just, just live it because it doesn't impact me. If you want to live sinfully, live sinfully because it really doesn't influence my life. But that's not the truth. Christian, how you live impacts me, and how I live impacts you. We are, we are interrelated in ways we don't even understand, and let me give you an illustration. Back in the 80s, I used to speak at Hume Lake a lot, and Hume Lake, for those of you who don't know, is a big camp for, for teenagers. And on Sunday nights, I would go, and, and you know, always began on Sunday nights, and you'd speak two times a day, and the kids never knew who you were because they came from churches from all over. And so I always did a fun, hey, you know, what do you want to know about me? You know, you can ask me questions. <laughs> and the questions used to be like, uh, hey, boxers or briefs? I mean, there were always, you know, you know, questions that kids ask, you know, it was always kind of fun, you know, and whatever. In the 80s, though, something took place. In fact, I think the 80s church historians are probably going to record as the decade in which the church was robbed of a lot of its power and punch. And it wasn't robbed by the devil or the demons. It was robbed by the very people who claimed to know Jesus. You see, back in the 80s, there was a, a very large TV ministry, and there was a guy by the name of Jim Baker, and he was really the only guy on TV, and, and he had this network, and praise the Lord network, and he was building a city for God, and there was all this stuff, and, and uh, you know, people would you know, send money into him, and, and he, was, he was kind of the face of Christianity, if you will, unfortunately. Because there came a moment when we found out that he was sleeping with his secretary. Her name was Jessica Hahn. And then the people, you know, good people who were sending that ministry money, he was taking that money and giving it to Jessica Hahn to keep her quiet. It was hush money. Well, it finally came out and he was busted. And man, you can imagine how the uh, media handled that, right? I mean, I mean, they made a big deal about it. But there was another guy, another big-time Christian guy on TV. His name was Jimmy Swaggart. And Jimmy Swaggart at that same time came out on TV, and uh, he pointed his bony finger at Jimmy Swaggart and said, man, what a loser. That guy should never have done that, and that's crummy. And then we found out that Jimmy Swaggart had a bunch of naked dancing ladies in a hotel room. So now I go to Hume. It's Sunday night. Hey, who, anybody got any questions? And I remember a young guy standing up saying, yeah, I want to know, are you sleeping with your secretary? The questions changed. What somebody did in North Carolina or wherever those places were 
was now impacting my life. I now had a room full of kids who were looking at me going, dude, you're just like those guys. And so now I gotta spend about two or three days trying to earn their trust, having conversations uh, at, the, at, the, you know, uh, at the snack bar and, and you know, around the lake with these kids who saw all this on TV and thought, well, you're all like that, right? Beloved, what you do impacts me and how I choose to live impacts you. How we live matters to God. But God also cares about us as individuals and God is going to reveal the guilty man. But how God chooses to go about this is unbelievable. It's the multimedia event of the century. Look at verse 14 of chapter seven. God says, in the morning, I want you to present yourself by tribes, and the Lord's gonna point out the tribe to which the guilty man belongs. That tribe must come forward with its clans, and the Lord's gonna point out the guilty clan. That clan will come forward, and the Lord's gonna point out the guilty family. And then finally, each member of the guilty family must come forward one by one. So, I, that took me, what, five seconds to read? Oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. No, 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 I'm not gonna let you get away with that because this is unbelievable. God says, I want you to bring all the people, bring the whole nation together. And that, let's just say, we don't know exactly how many it was, but let's just say it's 1.2 million people and they're all together. Imagine a sea of humanity. And the people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes. You were a part of one of 12 tribes. And God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring up the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and I want you to put them up here. And have them walk across the platform one at a time, and I'm gonna point out the guilty tribe. So here are all these people all out there. I think in the front row were those 36 women. They wanna know who the loser is. Who's the one who's caused such pain and sorrow in our lives? I think right behind those women might have been the, the, the children wanting to see who was the guy that messed up my, my life. My daddy's been killed. And so here you had the leaders of the 12 tribes. And the first guy would have walked up, let's say, from the tribe of Dan. And he probably doesn't know 100,000 people are probably in that tribe. He doesn't know them all very well, but I'm sure he's thinking to himself, look, there's nobody in my tribe that would do this. We love the Lord. We heard from God very clearly. It was a simple command. There's nobody in my tribe. And God says, that's not the guilty tribe. Well, of course it ain't the guilty tribe. I know my people. I know my peeps. You know, like this. My peeps and I are like this. I don't know. And then, and then the, the leader from the tribe of Manasseh, he walks up. And God says, that's not the guilty tribe. And he walks away. And then you had the leader from the tribe of Judah. That's Achan's tribe. And somewhere out in this mass of humanity, there's Achan somewhere, by a bush or by a tree. And the tribe leader from Judah walks up. And God goes, that's the guilty tribe. Now what that meant was, 
If you were a part of the other 11 tribes, I don't know, 1.1 million people, you knew. Hey, nobody in our tribe. We, we, we don't got the, the rotten apple in our tribe. But now there were 100,000 people that went, dude, it's one of us. And somewhere out there's aching going, whoa, whoa, that's weird. I mean, there was one out of 12 chance here, and uh, maybe he just got lucky. And then God says, I want you to bring all the people from the tribe of Judah forward. So now they're all making their way closer to the front of the 36 women. And he says, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring up a leader from each of the clans within the tribe of Judah. And there may have been 15 clans that may have had, I don't know, 8,000 people in them. And so now you have all of these leaders of these clans that are up here. And now they, this guy that oversees this clan, he probably knows the people a little bit better than the tribe leader. And one at a time, a man would walk across and God would say, no, that's not the guilty clan. Another man would walk across. No, that's not the guilty clan. And then there was a guy named Zerah. Aiken's in his clan. And Zerah walked across the stage, the platform, in front of the people. And God said, that's the guilty clan. Now, imagine you're Aiken. Whoa, that's just weird. That's freaky. I think he's got a little sweat on his brow, don't you think? Then God says, what I want you to do is I want you to take uh, a leader from each of the, the families within the clan of Zerah. And so now all of a sudden you probably got another 15 guys up there. This is probably a, like a great, great grandfather. So now... This is great-great-grandfather all lined up up here. They know their people. They know their sons. They know their grandsons. They know their great-grandsons. And one at a time, these family leaders would walk across a platform, and I'm sure they were thinking, ain't me. I know my family. And God says, that's, that's not the guilty family. And one at a time, these men made their way across the platform, and God says, no, that's not the family. No, that's not the family. And then you got a guy by the name of Zimrah. Maybe it's Achan's grandfather. Maybe there's four guys behind him, and out there's Achan somewhere. And Zimrah walks up on the platform or in front of the people, and God says, that's the guilty family. I'm sure Zimra was just going, oh man, no. Not one of my boys, please no. Not one of my grandkids, not one of my great grandkids. They've been taught the ways of the Lord. They would never disobey God. That had to just be a crummy moment for Zimra. And now God says, I want you to bring every man from the family of Zimra forward. Now Aiken's in the line. Maybe there's 15 guys. Maybe Aiken's number 10 of the 15. You gotta just be wondering what was going through Aiken's mind as he's making his way forward. Hey, bro, what's happening? Oh, man. And now you, these guys know it ain't them. They know. I mean, you know whether you did it or not. 
So there's 10 guys in front of Achan. There's five guys behind Achan. You see what God's doing? He started with the spotlight, the 12 tribes, 1.2 million people, clan, family. Now he's down to a man. It's now a laser beam. And he's doing this in front of everybody. And I'm sure, at least in my mind, the first guy, the first guy didn't even stop. He just went, it ain't me, man. I did exactly what the Lord said. And he just walked off the stage, man. I'm sure the next guy was thinking, dude, it wasn't me. And sitting out there, Zimra. Sitting out there, these 36 women, all wondering, who's the guy? Aiken's on deck. There's five guys behind him. This guy walks up. That's not the guy. It's Aiken's turn. What do you think was going through Aiken's mind? Maybe he looked out and he saw his wife, and his wife's thinking, there's my man. He'd never blow God off. My man would never do anything like that. There's my daddy. Hey, daddy. My daddy's a godly man. My daddy wouldn't do anything like that. I don't know what was going through the mind of his family. I don't know. But I like my mind to think about those things. But imagine Achan walks up. Five guys waiting. And God says, that's the guilty man. <sighs> Could you imagine? You can, you can read that in like 20 seconds. This is one of the just great stories. And guess what Achan did? He did exactly what Jim Baker did. He did exactly what uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggart did when, the, when they were busted and, and the, the tape was handed into Fox News or CNN and there they were busted. You know what those guys did? <laughs> I have sinned! The crocodile tears were rolling, man. And that's exactly what Aiken did. I have sinned! Well, there's a news flash, Aiken! Where were you two hours ago, Aiken? How about an hour ago, Aiken? How about 20 minutes ago, Aiken? Now that you're busted. Look at verse 14. Excuse me, look, look, look at verse uh, 21. Aiken replied, I want you to know, you know underline this verse. This is a, a, a weighty passage. Achan replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 2,000 silver coins and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them, and they're hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. 
Let me quickly walk you through uh, how to become a hypocrite in four easy steps. Let me take a little sidebar here, if I could. And I want you to listen to me, believer. This was, this happened thousands of years ago, but I want you to know it's every bit applicable today. And I want you to pay very close attention. Step one of becoming a uh, hypocrite is Achan said he saw the gold. And let me have a little fun. Let me pretend like this is a baseball game, okay? How many strikes do you get before you're out? You get three, right? Strike one. This is strike one. He's inside the house, and he saw the gold. He saw the silver. Now, I think he's okay at this point. I remember once there was a, a man in our church. He sat right down here the last hour, and I pulled up at Starbucks, and I'd heard he had a, a, a red Ferrari. Never seen it. I'd never even seen a Ferrari in my life, except for on TV. And I pulled up to Starbucks, and I pulled up right next to it, this red Ferrari. And I got out of my car, and I, I, I saw the Ferrari. <laughs> it had, its bolts were, were different than the bolts of my Toyota. <laughs> paint job. It wasn't the same as my Toyota paint job. It just, and I'm, I saw it. And nothing necessarily crummy about that. Step two, or strike two, Aiken wanted the gold, is what he said. He sees the gold. Boy, he really wanted it. I'm looking at that Ferrari. And I, I gotta admit to you, I, I all of a sudden I went, dude, I want that Ferrari. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was I'm looking at it going, oh dude, I want that. I deserve that. <laughs> Every youth pastor ought to have a Ferrari. <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine pulling on to Davis High Campus, man. That'd give me that'd give me something to talk about. Pulling on with a crummy Corolla. I mean, <laughs> kids don't want to talk to you, man. You pull on with that. I just imagine the spiritual conversations I could have. <laughs> really. But I'm not out, and I don't think Aiken was out at this point. Step three or strike three, Aiken took. The gold. You see, it's one thing for me to go, whoa, look at that Ferrari. It's another thing to go, oh man, I really want that Ferrari. It's a whole nother world if I went, psh, broke the window, hopped in and rah, drove off with the thing, you see? That's where you've crossed a huge line. Strike three, you're out. But you're not a hypocrite yet. Aiken's not a hypocrite yet. It's the fourth step that makes him hypocrite. He saw the gold. He wanted the gold. He took the gold. And then he went and buried the gold. Now he's got this little sin in his life that no one knows about. That's when you become a hypocrite, Christian. The fact that you sin that, that's why we got a cross. We're, we're, we're sinful people. It's when we become hypocrites, when we have sin in our lives that hasn't been dealt with, and we bury it. Man, I wish I had more time. Let, let me tell you how the story ends. 
because it doesn't end very well. This is going to trouble some of you. It troubles me. This is what God says. Joshua, I want you to take Achan. I want you to take his wife. I want you to take his children. I want you to take them to the outskirts of town. And I want you to kill them all. I want you to stone them all to death. Did Achan's wife know anything about this? I don't think so. Did Achan's children know anything about his buried sin? I don't think so. I wish I had some great thought for you. I don't. All I know is that they took Achan and his family to the outskirts of town, and maybe those 36 women all got first, first shot. Maybe all the children then got the second round of rocks. Maybe the, the family of Zimra got the third round of rocks. I, I don't know how it all went. All I know is, is at the end of the thing, there were a bunch of dead people under this pile of rocks. And imagine a month later, you know, Guys, you decide to take your, your woman out for a little stroll and you grab her hand and you're walking through town and all of a sudden you get to that big pile of rocks. Because you know what's under that rock pile. Dead human beings. And you know why there's dead human beings underneath that rock pile, don't you? Because somebody disobeyed God. Somebody chose to blow off God's will. I see, I, I think the moral of the story of Achan, at least in my opinion, is this, is that God hates sin. That was a pile of rocks that said that God hates sin because it destroys not only your own life, but it destroys everybody else's life too, right? All the widows and children, the reputation of God. There was a big, huge pile of rocks that I think says that God hates sin. Now, let me just tell you what happened in my office. I'm trying to figure out, man, God, that's just brutal. Wife and the kids? And then all of a sudden, I was struck with something. Instead of spending all my time trying to figure that out, God said to me, Rick, you're just like Achan. You're a sinful person. That could have easily been you at the outskirts of town. That could have been your wife and your family. But I loved you so much, Rick. I cared about you so much that I took the stoning that you deserve. You see, we look at a cross and we say, there's a God who came and died in my place. The Bible says, but God loved, showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were but sinners. And all of a sudden, I was struck with this idea, this thought, that you know what? I deserve to be under a pile of rocks. But God loved me. And he sent his son to go to the outskirts of town, if you will, to take a stoning on my behalf. 
Look, Christian, I know that there are some of you in here and you love Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, you're going to heaven, you're here today, thank the Lord, but you know what? Like Achan, you got something buried in your life. We've all done it. Today's the day you just need to say, God, I'm digging it up and I'm gonna bring it to the light. I'm gonna go into the altar room. I'm gonna ask the spiritual leaders of our church to pray for me. I'm gonna come down here on a Tuesday night and go to celebrate recovery and I'm digging up the pornography. I'm digging up the narcotic abuse. I'm digging up my anger. I'm digging up my rage. I'm digging up my line. I'm, I'm digging up whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. We all got our thing. For, for Aiken, it was a bar of gold and silver. That could be it for you too. Materialism has got you, right? I don't know what it is for you. I don't, and I don't care. What I do know is that you deserve to be on the outskirts of town with a pile of rocks all over you. But God so loved the world that he gave his son for you. He took what you, do, you deserve. And today ought to be a great day of deliverance and repentance for a lot of you and just say, I'm coming clean. Because as long as you keep it buried, man, it's just gonna eat you alive. It's gonna eat you alive. You're never gonna experience a life that God has for you, never. And so today needs to be the day. Now listen, if you're here and, and you know the Lord and maybe... You know, maybe things are going good in your life. A story like this ought to motivate you to continue to live a, a God-honoring life. Sin's an ugly thing. It impacts our lives. But I also know there's probably one or two or 10 of you here, and you know what? You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. There will come a day when you will be on the outskirts of town, so to speak. And you will take the punishment that you deserve for your sin. Or you can surrender your life over to Jesus Christ and allow him to take the punishment. Allow him to take the stoning, if you will, for your sin. Most of us in here have done it. See, we, we know we deserve to be on the outskirts of town, but that's why we come and we sing and we hoop and we holler for Jesus and we give because we know we're supposed to be aching. We're supposed to be under a pile of rocks, but we're not. Jesus is there. He took it for us. And today is the day some of you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. And say, Jesus, I'm surrendering my life to you. Cleanse me of my sin. I want to be one of your followers today. In fact, I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes over in the venue. And before we pray, I just want to do this. While your eyes are closed, if you're here, look, and, and you know Jesus, and you've got something buried in your life, today, would you, would you knock it off? Today, dig it up. Come clean today. I know you're embarrassed and I know there's shame involved in that and it's supposed to be that way. When you've got sin in your life, it ought to be embarrassing. But let me tell you something, it's way worse to keep it buried. Come and talk to one of our elders, one of our pastors. Come and make an appointment and meet one of our counselors. Come down here on Tuesday nights. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, let me tell you something, right now you ought to say, Lord, Come into my life right now. Jesus, come into my life right now. Forgive me of my sin. I give you my life. It's yours. I want to be one of your followers. Just say something like that, and if you mean it, the Bible says that, that, that Jesus will do what you ask. He comes into your life. And he'll cleanse you of your sin.
And in just a little bit, you could walk into the altar room if you've said that and you meant that and say, hey, and I prayed today and I don't even know what that means. Let us give you a Bible. Let us get you on some tracks, man, that, that will help you live a, a, a life that would honor the Lord. God's got an incredible life plan for each of you. Each of you. Don't let sin muck it up. Pastor Scott, would you, would you pray?